Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 39. This is the first of four chapters that contain Alma's counsel and teachings to his youngest son, Corianton. So far, we've covered Alma chapters 36 and 37, where Alma addressed Helaman, and then, of course, Alma chapter 38 addressed Shiblon. Well, having just finished a chapter where we considered Shiblon's experience as a missionary in the land of Antionum, where he was apprehended and he was stoned, and where through the entire experience he showed great steadiness and diligence, Alma opens chapter 39 with this piercing question to Corianton. Quote, Have ye not observed the steadiness of thy brother, his faithfulness and his diligence in keeping the commandments of God? Behold, has he not set a good example before thee? Well, we can tell from Alma's tone alone that something is not right as this chapter opens. Uh, Corianton has not performed as honorably as Shiblon on the Zormite mission. And as the opening verses continue, we discover that this suspicion is indeed true. So what was the sin, or the other word that Alma will use in this chapter is crime, that Corianton committed? We read in verse 3 that, quote, Thou didst forsake the ministry and did go over into the land of Siren among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. Alma will go on in this chapter to discuss the egregious implications, more generally, of the violation of the law of chastity. In fact, he tells Corianton in verse 5 that this law is so sacred that its violation is, quote, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. At this point, one might ask, why? Just why is the law of chastity so sacred? Who really is hurt by unsanctioned sexual relations? Which, by the way, is not explicitly stated as Corianton's sin in this chapter, but certainly is it, it is contextually implied. So, why is this law so sacred, and, and who really is hurt? Especially between mature consenting parties. And although this was probably not the case with Corianton and Isabel, What if there is genuine and mutual love between such parties? Of course, in our modern and our material or even empirical society, where only that which is physical and observable is considered to be real, this question occurs even more naturally to the natural man, as Paul put it, who receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Well, the answer to this question as to what's the harm and really who is hurt by breaking this law has been masterfully answered by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. 
In his 1988 BYU address entitled Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments, uh, he explained how the spiritual consequences of the violation of this sacred law are even more lasting than any observance of its physical effects. Quote, The external symbol of the union of marriage, the physical manifestation of what is far deeper and metaphysical bonding, is the physical blending. That is part of, indeed, a most beautiful and gratifying expression of, that larger, more complete union of eternal purpose and promise. It is in that act of ultimate physical intimacy we most nearly fulfill the commandment of the Lord given to Adam and Eve, living symbols for all married couples when he invited them to cleave unto one another only and thus become one flesh. Obviously, Elder Holland continues, such a commandment to these two, the first husband and wife of the human family, has unlimited implications, social, cultural, and religious, as well as physical. But that is exactly my point. As all couples come to that moment of bonding in mortality, it is to be just such a complete union. That commandment cannot be fulfilled, and that symbolism of one flesh cannot be preserved, if we hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously share intimacy in a darkened corner of a darkened hour. Then, just as hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously retreat to our separate worlds, not to eat or live or cry or laugh together, not to do the laundry and the dishes and the homework, not to manage a budget and pay the bills and tend the children and plan for the future. No, we cannot do that until we truly are one, united, bound, linked, tied, welded, sealed, married. Can you see then the moral schizophrenia that comes from pretending we are one, sharing the physical symbols and physical intimacy of our union, but then fleeing, retreating, severing all such other aspects and symbols of what was meant to be a total obligation, only to unite again furtively some other night, or worse yet, furtively unite with some other partner who is no more bound to us, no more one with us, than the last was, or than the one that will come next week or next month or next year or any time before the binding commitments of marriage. You must wait, Elder Holland continues. You must wait until you can give everything, And you cannot give everything until you are at least legally, and for Latter-day Saint purposes, eternally pronounced as one. To give illicitly that which is not yours to give. Remember, you are not your own. A quote from Paul. And to give only part of that which cannot be followed with the gift of your whole heart, and your whole life, and your whole self, is its own form of emotional Russian roulette. If you persist in sharing part without the whole, in pursuing satisfaction devoid of symbolism— In giving parts and pieces and inflamed fragments only, you run the terrible risk of such spiritual psychic damage that you may undermine both your physical intimacy and your wholehearted devotion to a truer, later love. You may come to that moment of real love, of total union, only to discover to your horror that what you should have saved has been spent, and, mark my words, only God's grace can recover that piecemeal dissipation of your virtue. Well, this is what was at stake then for Corianton. Will and Ariel Durant, and this is a quote that I read from recently, provided brilliant insight into the value of the law of chastity in their Western, uh, in their survey of Western civilization. It's called Lessons of History, and of course, they've written many, many other volumes as well. They said, "No one man." And again, we're considering here the damage done when the law of chastity is broken. 
No one man, however brilliant or well-informed, can come into one lifetime to such fullness of understanding as to safely judge and dismiss the customs or institutions of his society. For those are the wisdom of generations after centuries of experiment in the laboratory of history. That point, uh, in and of itself, is something to really think about. A youth boiling with hormones, and so now chastity becomes an example of that, uh, that broader point, a youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires, and if he is unchecked by custom, moral, or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos the individual and the group. Well, now, returning to Book of Mormon times, there was Jacob, the brother of Nephi, uh, someone who predated Corianton to such a degree that even in Corianton's era, uh, Jacob's teaching may have seemed antiquated. But the words of Jacob's temple sermon in Jacob chapter 2 are abundantly relatable in any era, and really they would have cut Corianton to the very center. Note what Jacob spoke with such power and eloquence uh, with regard to the violation of this law. He said to his people, And I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. And I will not suffer, saith the Lord of hosts, that the cries of the fair daughters of this people, which I have led out of the land of Jerusalem, shall come up unto me against the men of my people, saith the Lord of hosts. For they shall not lead away captive the daughters of my people because of their tenderness, save I shall visit them with a sore curse, even unto destruction. For they shall not commit whoredoms like unto them of old, saith the Lord of hosts. And now, behold, my brethren, ye know that these commandments were given to our father Lehi. Wherefore, ye have known them before, and ye have come unto great condemnation, for ye have done these things which ye ought not to have done. So, with all this established, having soberly considered the nature of the sin that Corianton committed, let's look now at the circumstances for a moment. We certainly know about the circumstances surrounding the mission to the Zormites. Uh, we know who went. It was Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom, Ammon, Aaron, and Omner, all seasoned missionaries who were doctrinally grounded and most certainly were converted unto the Lord. As readers, we had great confidence in their abilities when we read that these were the missionaries going to Antionum in Alma chapter 31. Then there were Alma's sons, the two young upstarts that went with these seasoned missionaries, and that, of course, was Shiblon and Corianton. The former, Shiblon, performed his mission admirably, whereas Corianton, the latter, did not. It is puzzling, I think, that Corianton could do something this grave, this moral sin, while on an errand so sacred as this mission to the Zoramites, and to do so among companions who were so spiritually mature. Corianton could not have had better missionary mentors. This brings a new question, I think, that merits some discussion before we move into the text of Alma chapter 39, and that is, how could Corianton have been brazen enough to leave his missionary field of labor after having been set apart to that task in a way that's described so dramatically at the end of Alma chapter 31? And then to surreptitiously travel to another land, which, by the way, is unironically presented as siren 
in the text. But of course, its phonetic similarity to the English word siren makes the name into an almost unavoidable play on words for us. But how could he uh, sneakily go into the land of siren and and to engage a well-known harlot while he is a set-apart missionary? Well, loving Alma and his companions as we do, and having high hopes for their success in the land of Antionum when we read about their beginning of this mission in Alma chapter 31, this is a terribly disappointing outcome among this otherwise stellar group of missionaries. How could they have allowed this to happen to Corianton? And really, more to the point, how could Corianton have made it happen in spite of his errand and in spite of their influence? Well, two answers to this difficult question come to the fore, I think, as we consider the text. For the first answer, we can turn back to Jacob chapter 2, where we will see that before his indictment of unchastity to the people of his time, there was an earlier charge that he levied towards them while speaking at the temple. He said in verses 13 through 16, "...because some of you have obtained more abundantly than that of your brethren, ye are lifted up in the pride of your hearts." and wear stiff necks and high heads because of the costliness of your apparel, and persecute your brethren because ye suppose that ye are better than they. And now, my brethren, do ye suppose that God justifieth you in this thing? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but he condemneth you. And if ye persist in these things, his judgments must speedily come unto you. Oh, that he would show you that he can pierce you, and with one glance of his eye he can smite you to the dust. Oh, that ye would rid Oh, that he would rid you from this iniquity and abomination, and oh, that you would listen unto the word of his commands, and let not this pride of your hearts destroy your souls. So, pride was actually the first accusation in Jacob's sermon on chastity in Jacob chapter 2. Now, could it be the same in Alma chapter 39? Well, notice the first accusation that Alma gives Corianton in Alma chapter 39 verse 3. For thou didst not give so much heed unto my words, as did thy brother, among the people of the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee, meaning against thee, Corianton. Thou didst go on unto boasting in thy strength and thy wisdom. So yes, this is the order of things. It turns out that Alma first addresses Corianton's pride before addressing his unchastity. It's the same pattern that Jacob followed in Jacob chapter 2. Now, was this the same pride born of materialism that Jacob described in his temple sermon? Well, yes, for Corianton as well, this was a pride that was connected to material treasure. Uh, We can see that at the end of Alma chapter 39, where it kind of removes all doubt of this, where he says first in verse 9 and then in verse 14, Now, my son, I would that you should repent and forsake of your sins and go no more after the lusts of your eyes. Seek not after riches, nor the vain things of this world, for behold, you cannot carry them with you. Well, amazingly then, we can see that Alma is following the same pattern of rebuke as Jacob. Pride is clearly what preceded Corianton's violation of the law of chastity. This same was true, uh, the same was true in Jacob's time, and the same is true in ours. Because of this, we might consider pride as a gateway sin, It can dull or shroud one's spiritual sensitivity to the point that they could defy the light within and do something as brazen as what Corianton did. No wonder President Ezra Taft Benson said in his well-known 1989 talk that, quote, 
Pride is the universal sin, the great vice. Yes, pride is the universal sin, the great vice. This, by the way, seems to be President Benson's explicit answer to an implicit question that one really naturally comes to after a careful study of Scripture. And that question is, is there a universal sin, a great vice that lies at the foundation of all other sins? Well, the answer is yes, and it is pride. Well, a second answer to the question of Coriantan sin will also provide us with more context as we look or as we consider the next four chapters in this section of the book of Alma. As we look at these chapters broadly, we can see that they are bookended with behavioral admonitions, such as the ones we just read in Alma chapter 39 and the admonition that we will read at the end of Alma chapter 42. In verses 29 and 30 of that chapter, it says, And now, my son, I desire that ye should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. O my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. Then he goes on to say, But do you let the justice of God in his mercy and his long-suffering have full sway in your heart, and let it bring you down to the dust in humility? So again, these are the book-ending behavioral admonitions that are found in the four-chapter section of Alma, chapters 39 through 42. Everything in the middle, and all this is, of course, is when Alma is talking to Corianton. So everything in the middle of this section is doctrinal in nature. In this way, the arrangement of the text seems to be telling us something very significant. It's something that Elder Boyd K. Packer put in this very memorable way. Quote, True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. Preoccupation with unworthy behavior can lead to unworthy behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. Well, I think it's clear that a lot was at stake here with Corianton. He was in a lot of trouble. And as Alma approached Corianton, and as we see this unfold over these four chapters, we can see Alma identifying uh, Corianton's problematic behavior. But following this great principle, he moves in to doctrine itself. So from this, we can see that Corianton had doctrinal misunderstandings, as we will see in forthcoming chapters. These misunderstandings led to misbehavior then. Now, this is not to say that he arrived at these misunderstandings innocently, as Corianton, or as Alma told Corianton at the end of Alma chapter 42. I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. So that tells us that that was somewhat willful that Corianton was doing that. And do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point, also a willful act on Corianton's part, because of your sins by denying the justice of God. This, then, was the way in which Corianton was willfully and fundamentally culpable. Pride had hardened his heart and darkened his mind to the degree that he lacked a correct understanding of the doctrine of Christ. That might be one way of explaining uh, his reason for sinning. The Savior taught about the relationship between behavior and doctrine in John chapter 7, verse 17, when he said, If any man will do his will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So this passage implies a sequential relationship, that a full understanding of doctrine is preceded by acts of faith and obedience. In other words, 
one cannot fully see the beauty of the doctrines of Christ until one has shown belief in him through obedience. I know not, said Adam, save the Lord commanded me. That's the earliest and most quintessential example, perhaps, of someone who is willing to obey so that enlightenment can follow. When we follow the opposite sequence as we consider the relationship the, the relationship between doctrine and belief, the sequence of Paul's natural man, uh, is a, one way we might put it, then false doctrines tend to be chosen, and these are doctrines that accommodate our behaviors, something we've talked about previously. For example, those who commit acts of immorality will naturally be drawn, think of the word naturally there, will naturally be drawn to a belief that, as Korhor taught in Alma chapter 30, verse 17, every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature, therefore every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever man whatsoever man did was no crime. This shows us, then, that our personal beliefs regarding the fabric of reality do not simply descend upon us with the same apparent randomness as our genetic predilection to certain tastes or colors or phenotypes. Instead, our doctrinal understanding has a subtle but an immutable relationship to the degree to which we live in harmony with the heavenly reality that surrounds us. It can constantly be brought into alignment and refinement through the process of repentance, and as the Doctrine and Covenants says, by learning by study and by faith. This way, our own doctrinal understanding can be brought into closer and closer alignment with reality. Our behavior will naturally improve then as a precedent, but also as a consequence of this process of alignment. As Elder Lawrence Corbridge recently put it in his 2019 BYU address uh, entitled Stand Forever, he said, people say you should be true to your beliefs. While that is true, you cannot be better than what you know. Most of us act based on our beliefs, especially what we believe to be in our self-interest. The problem is we are sometimes wrong. The challenge is not so much closing the gap between our actions and our beliefs. Rather, the challenge is closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. That is the challenge. Well, to build upon this idea just a little more, Consider the doctrinal points that Alma taught to Coriantin. He taught him about resurrection, about restoration, about the fall and justice and mercy, and about the atonement. If you don't believe Christ shall come, what behaviors will that lead to? The Book of Mormon is replete with examples of that. If you don't understand justice, which seemed to be fundamental to Coriantin's problems, And if you don't believe in resurrection and restoration, well then, why should you bridle your passions, as Shiblon did and was counseled to do? We can see then that Alma went right to the heart of Coriantin's problem by teaching him these particular doctrines. And there was no one more able to teach Coriantin these things than his father, who once was a young prodigal with undoubtedly similar doctrinal misunderstandings. But Alma had the courage at that point in his life to allow, as he said in Alma chapter 42, verse 30, to let the salvation of Jesus Christ have, quote, full sway in his heart. We will see that as Alma comes to the end of chapter 42, that Coriantin is admonished to teach the gospel to others. 
Well, this gives us the hope for Corianton, that he can still repent of his wrongdoings and become serviceable to the Lord again. He's not simply being cast aside, but Alma wants him to still join with these other missionaries that are doing so much good. In this sense, I think Corianton is a proxy for each of us. As President Russell M. Nelson said very recently, actually, quote, I have learned that even through clouds of sorrow, there can be silver linings found. Well, we will be very happy to discover later in the book of Alma, in Alma chapter 49, verse 30, that Corianton did repent and did return to the ministry. And he was found among others who helped restore a period of peace among Nephite society through preaching the gospel. And verse 30 says, Yea, again, this is Alma chapter 49, and there was continual peace among them and exceedingly great prosperity in the church because of the, their heed and diligence which they gave unto the word of God, which was declared unto them by Helaman and Shiblon and Corianton and Ammon and his brethren, yea, and by all those who had been ordained by the holy order of God, being baptized unto repentance and sent forth to preach among the people. So after Alma finishes speaking to Corianton, we, in Alma chapter 42, we really are left to wonder what came of him. And so it's really with a lot of joy for us as readers that we do read this verse um, in chapter 49 and see that Corianton was counted among these missionaries. Well, what is the effect for us then as we read Alma's teachings that like Corianton, there actually is a way for us amidst our tendency towards sin to return whole to the presence of God, uh, fully reconciled to him and all that that word implies, and all this while still keeping our agency intact. These are all the things that Alma will talk about in this four-verse segment, four-chapter segment, rather. In other words, what does it do to us when we realize that justice must indeed have its claim? We can't deny it. And that each of us personally owes a debt to this heavenly demand that far exceeds our ability to pay it. And then, in the angst of this anticipated reckoning, we come to realize for ourselves that the Savior of the world is also our personal Savior, that He, the only one, actually paid our personal debt to justice, the one that we incurred, the one that we owe, thereby allowing the thing that we hardly even dare to hope when we read about it in Alma chapter 42, that mercy might have its claim upon us, that because of this, we might return someday as robed prodigals to the presence of an eager and loving father. I remember when I made this discovery as a 16-year-old reading the Book of Mormon in earnest in between school years um, at our family farm in Ashton, Idaho. Tears filled my eyes as I truly considered Alma chapter 42 for the first time, and a feeling of gratitude, not gratitude in the abstract, but gratitude specifically towards this atoning, rescuing being that intervened on my behalf and opened the way. These feelings filled my soul on that occasion, and it is a sense that has not left me to this day. It might not be an understatement to say that Alma's teachings to Corianton in this four-chapter segment are life-altering for him, and it is certainly not an understatement to say that they have been for me personally. So I just want to pause and say thanks be to the Son of God for his atoning gift, which does allow for the possibility of Alma's very challenging but hopeful doctrine of restoration that he teaches in these four chapters. 
this doctrine, because of the Savior, can actually work in our favor. Well, a longer-than-usual introduction, uh, but I think much to consider as we come into this segment. Zalma addresses Corant, and it's such a key part of the Book of Mormon, I think. Well, now to look at the structure of this chapter, Alma chapter 39, we can see in verses 1 and 2 that this is where Corianton's behavior is contrasted with Shiblon's steadiness in Antionum when they're there on their mission to the Zoramites. And, and this problem that Corianton boasted in his strength and in his wisdom, it reveals a measure of pride. Then in verses 3 through 8, here is where Alma actually describes Corianton's crime. And so thinking about behavior and doctrine, here is where the bad behavior is being addressed. Before, in later chapters, uh, Alma really moves into his doctrinal teaching. So it's here where this crime, and crime is the word that's used. The word sin is used as well, but crime is used several times too. This crime of immorality, and it's weighed against other egregious crimes, such as murder, well, specifically of murder, and the unpardonable sin. And both of those things will be discussed in some interesting ways, particularly the latter, the unpardonable sin. Now in verses 9 through 14, we'll see Alma's instruction for how to repent. So now that he's outlined uh, what it is that Corianton has done, now it's time for him to show him the way forward, how to move forward and to turn from his sin. It's here in verse 9 where he tells Corianton to repent and to forsake his sins, and to go no more after the lust of his eyes. We can guess, in thinking about Korahor's, or Corianton's doctrinal understanding, um, actually, is not a bad slip there, because we, we can guess that Corianton's understanding, that, that he would have been right on the verge of wondering if there truly was a Savior, who ever would come. Uh, this is, of course, something that they were looking towards the future for, living before the meridian of time, as they were. So in the final verses of this chapter, verses 15 through 19, Alma will reassure Corianton of the coming of Christ, and he'll use this familiar term that we've seen in other places. Uh, The angel used it when he spoke to King Benjamin, for example, the glad tidings of the coming of Christ. Alma ends the verse by asking Corianton, is it not as easy at this time for the Lord to send his angel to declare these glad tidings unto us? as unto our children, or as after the time of his coming, saying that he's an eternal being, and and, uh, angels dispense his word, and they can do so before his coming just as well as they can do so after. And it's the same mechanism by which these glad tidings are made known. And interestingly, that was true for King Benjamin as well, that that um, information was delivered through an angel. Well, now coming back to a reading of this chapter, uh, verse 1, And now, my son, I have somewhat more to say unto thee, than what I have said unto thy brother. For behold, have ye not observed the steadiness of thy brother, his faithfulness and his diligence in keeping the commandments of God? Behold, has he not set a good example for thee? For thou didst not give so much heed unto my words as did thy brother among the people of the Zoramites. Now this is what I have against thee. Thou didst go on unto boasting in thy own strength and thy wisdom. Ogden and Skinner have written, Alma commanded his missionary son Corianton to repent. He had disobeyed mission rules by leaving his proselyting area to go after a woman. One of his first problems leading up to his immoral behavior was pride. He was boasting in his own strength and wisdom. It's my life. I can handle this. And then the tragedy ensued. In a way, pride is a denial of the fall and the need for the atonement. In short, it is a rejection of our dependency on Christ. Uh, Interesting ways, I think, there of defining pride and showing how it is the universal sin and the great vice. 
Now this, even uh, with some similar language from uh, McConkie and Millet, it is not that Corianton went throughout the streets of Antionum among the Zormites, bragging about himself and extolling his virtues. Uh, they're suggesting that's not what was meant by his pride. Instead, what he appears to have done is to assume that he possessed strength and wisdom of his own, independent of that strength and wisdom which come from God. In the parlance of our day, Corianton said, I can handle it. Unwilling to trust in the power and ways of the omnipotent one, Corianton was left to his own resources. He thought he knew better. He felt confident he had the willpower to deal with any eventuality, and he fell. Quite interesting for McConkie and Millet, I think, because uh, if you weren't sure of what they were talking about, it would sound like those are very positive traits for someone to be confident that he had the willpower to deal with any eventuality. But that, of course, is a, uh, is, is a dangerous notion. Um, we, we can lose our sense of dependence upon God when we have that sense and don't realize uh, how vulnerable we really always are to temptation and how much we need the protection of the Lord to go with us. Hence, of course, that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Verse 3, And this is not all, my son. Thou didst do that which was grievous unto me. For thou didst forsake the ministry, and did go over into the land of Siren among the borders of the Lamanites, after the harlot Isabel. So we know what was at stake in this Soramite mission. We know how important it was to the Nephites and to Nephite leadership for them to go to Antionim and to have success. There really was a great deal at stake, and they were trying to, to con, uh, reach enough of these Zoramite people that perhaps they wouldn't form the alliance that they feared with the Lamanites. Unfortunately, the, the alliance does come about, and we did read of that in Alma chapter 35, and we'll pick up back with that in Alma chapter 43. But that's what was at stake. Uh, these Great missionaries had very high hopes, and so when it says that thou didst do that which was grievous unto me, we can only imagine what Alma's feelings would have been when he discovered what Corianton had done, and and additionally as a set-apart missionary. Well, uh, as to who Isabel is, the harlot Isabel, this is from Brant Gardner. Alma does not mention doctrinal errors that Corianton started to believe, but rather his going after the harlot Isabel. She was apparently a Lamanite. To reach her, Corianton had to physically move toward the Lamanites, but he also moved culturally in that direction. He abandoned his mission, not to return to Zarahemla, his home, but to head in the opposite direction, both physically and spiritually. So this kind of makes us wonder about the timing of it all, too, because we know that the missionaries all eventually returned to Jershon and then eventually to Zarahemla, and maybe that's the time uh, in which Corianton did not return with them. Considering the fact that only six women in the Book of Mormon are named, and three of them, Eve, Sarah, and Mary, are biblical women, it is remarkable that Isabel's name is recorded. This fact alone suggests her importance, but doesn't give us enough of a hint to know why she was sufficiently important to name. With respect to the nature of sin that violates the law of chastity, President Boyd K. Packer once said the power of creation, or may we say procreation, is not just an incidental part of the plan. It is essential to it. Without it, the plan could not proceed. The misuse of it may disrupt the plan. Much of the happiness that may come to you in this life will depend on how you use the sacred power of creation. So that, of course, 
is what Corianton is tampering with, and that will explain why Alma is about to say what he is about to say. So verse 4, Yea, she did still away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord? Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost? Well, this kind of brings us back to this question that I posed in the introduction to uh, this particular chapter, which is why is it that this would be so serious? Why is this sin so serious? And here's something from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. He said, in exploiting the body of another, which means exploiting his or her soul, one desecrates the atonement of Christ, which saved that soul and which makes possible the gift of eternal life. And when one mocks the Son of Righteousness, one steps into a realm of heat hotter and holier than noonday sun. You cannot do so and not be burned. Please never say, who does it hurt? Why not a little freedom? I can transgress now and repent later. Please don't be so foolish and so cruel. You cannot with impunity crucify Christ afresh, which is a phrase out of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. Flee fornication, Paul cries, and flee anything like unto it, the Doctrine and Covenants adds. Why? Well, for one reason, because of the incalculable suffering in both body and spirit endured by the Savior of the world so that we could flee. We owe him something for that. Indeed, we owe him everything for that. Ye are not your own, Paul says. Ye have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In sexual transgression, the soul is at stake, the body and the spirit. That's from a conference talk in October of 1998 by Elder Holland, which is a a condensed version of that uh, wonderful talk that he gave at BYU called, again, of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments, which is very much worth searching out and studying. The Strength of Youth has a very plain and concise way of explaining the law of chastity and violations thereof. It says, The Lord's standard regarding sexual purity is clear and unchanging. Do not have any sexual relations before marriage and be completely faithful to your spouse after marriage. In God's sight, sexual sins are extremely serious. They defile the sacred power God has given us to create life. The prophet Alma taught that sexual sins are more serious than any other sins except murder or denying the Holy Ghost. And uh, we've just read that in verse 5 here. Now for a moment, in verse 6, Alma will expand on this idea of the unpardonable sin. He says in verse 6, For behold, if you deny the Holy Ghost when it once has had place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Interesting here that as a point of emphasis, this is repeated twice, which is something that is done all of the time in Hebrew parallelism, although the second time it's stated is some type of prime version of the first time that it's stated. But here, for pure emphasis, Alma says exactly the same thing twice. It's also interesting that he uses the word murder in uh, connection with this when he says murdereth against the light and knowledge of God that was his choice of words when he was talking about his uh, dalliances and sins uh, when he was a prodigal in Alma chapter 36 the prophet Joseph Smith provided great insight into this concept of the unpardonable sin Uh, he said all sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost for Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition 
So there, of course, the prophet is very clearly equating this concept of committing the unpardonable sin and becoming a son of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens opened unto him, and know God and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him, and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. And from that time he begins to be an enemy. This is the case with many apostates of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Verse 7, And now, my son, I would to God that ye had not been so guilty of so great a crime. I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul, if it were not for your good. But behold, ye cannot hide your crimes from God, and except ye repent, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. To this idea that your sins can't be hidden before God, Richard G. Scott once taught, Do not take comfort in the fact that your transgressions are not known by others. That is like an ostrich with his head buried in the sand. He sees only darkness and feels comfortably hidden. In reality, he is ridiculously conspicuous. Likewise, our every act is seen by our Father in heaven and his beloved Son. They know everything about us. I invite each one of you to thoughtfully review your life. Is there a dark corner that needs to be cleaned out? When it is quiet and you can think clearly, does your conscience tell you to repent? So now Alma has levied these charges. He has told Corianton what it is that he knows, and he's told him very specifically that he's been prideful and that he's violated the law of chastity. And now he says in verse 9, Now, my son, I would that ye should repent and forsake your sins and go no more after the lusts of your eyes, but cross yourself on all these things. For except ye do this, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. O remember and take it upon you and cross yourself in these things. Well, interesting language to cross himself in these things and also going after the lusts of his eyes. We find that materialism is a problem. We spoke of that earlier, but we'll see that uh, very explicitly later in this in this chapter. And so the lusts of Corianton's eyes, I think Alma is, is using that phrase more broadly, and it shows us a possible connection between immoral lusts of the type that the Savior discusses in the Beatitudes, but also uh, materialistic lusts how it is that submitting to one can open us up to being tempted by the other, I think. We'll come back in a moment to the use of this phrase, cross yourself, and first read this from the Institute Manual. How does going no more after the lusts of your eyes apply to us? In today's world with advanced technology, there are many ways Satan offers such temptations. Many prophets in recent years have warned us about the dangers of pornography in its many forms. Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained the dangers of allowing evil into our minds. Our Savior emphasized the importance of sexual purity, and here's where the quote has begun by Elder Oaks, when he taught that it was sinful for man to even look upon a woman to lust after her. We are surrounded by the promotional literature of illicit sexual relations on the printed page and on the screen. For your own good, avoid it. Pornographic or erotic stories and pictures are worse than filthy or polluted food. The body has defenses to rid itself of unwholesome food. With a few fatal exceptions, bad food will only make you sick, but do no permanent harm. In contrast, a person who feasts upon filthy stories or pornographic or erotic pictures and literature records them in this marvelous retrieval system we call a brain. The brain won't vomit back filth. Once recorded, it will always remain subject to recall. 
flashing its perverted images across your mind and drawing you away from the wholesome things in life. President Ezra Taft Benson described several ways Satan tries to get pornography into our minds. Consider carefully the words of the prophet Alma to his errant son Corianton. Forsake your sins and go no more after the lusts of your eyes. The lusts of your eyes in our day, what does that expression mean? Asks President Benson. Movies, television programs, and video recordings that are both suggestive and lewd. Magazines and books that are obscene and pornographic. We counsel you, young men, not to pollute your minds with such degrading matter. For the mind through which this filth passes is never the same afterwards. Don't see R-rated movies or vulgar videos or participate in any entertainment that is immoral, suggestive, or pornographic. Don't listen to music that is degrading. Then this from President Gordon B. Hinckley. Pornography is printed and pictorial material designed to excite us and attract us into areas that will only bring regret. It is enticing in its appeal. It plays on the instincts that lie within all of us, God-given instincts placed within us for his great purposes. Pornography is a tool of the devil to twist those instincts to forbidden ends. It most often involves beautiful young women and handsome young men. The purpose of its creation is to put dollars in the pockets of its creators. The result of its use is to warp the minds and excite the passions of those who fall into its trap. It brings billions to its creators. It leads to heartache and pain and regret for those who indulge in it. It is found in magazines that can be bought at most newsstands, in theaters showing R and X-rated movies, and on our television screens in our homes. That was uh, from President Hinckley in 1997, and was, of course, before mobile devices and tablet form and the size of phones have become so pervasive now uh, as pornography is peddled to the masses. The phrase, cross yourself, as used in Alma chapter 39, verse 9, is not familiar to us today. However, in Webster's 1828 dictionary, we find the following helpful definitions that relate to Alma's counsel to his son. Quote, to erase, to cancel, to counteract, to stop, to preclude. All of these actions apply well to what one must do to avoid moral transgression. The topic Alma was teaching his son Corianton. Refer also, oh, and then this is the the manual referring to itself, so refer also to the footnote for Alma, chapter 39, uh, verse 9b, which refers to self-mastery in the topical guide. So self-mastery is something to look at when we think of the phrase, cross yourself. Now verse 10, and I command you to take it upon you to counsel with your elder brothers in your undertaking. For behold, thou art in thy youth, and ye stand in need to be nourished by your brothers, and give heed to their counsel." We can just imagine the dynamic between these brothers at this point. It, it, we learn at, at another point that Corianton is younger than Shiblon and Helaman. And uh, Corianton is, is certainly um, has some measure of pride and confidence in what it is that he does. And this is probably a very difficult piece of counsel that Alma is giving him to actually counsel with his own brethren. Then verse 11, Suffer not yourself to be led away by any vain or foolish thing. Suffer not the devil to lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. Behold, O my son, how great iniquity ye brought upon the Zoramites, for when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. Now, as readers, of course, this is our great fear. We've taken uh, such interest in this Zoramite mission up to this point. And now to come to Alma chapter 39 and to discover that one of the missionaries actually did this and damaged the reputation of the missionaries, um, and uh, made their words less credible. Uh, that is a, a, a real tragedy, and it's a sad thing for us to read, and of course, there are modern-day analogs to that. 
Alma is also revealing a concern here in verse 11 that Corianton might do it again, that this was not just a one-off mistake. So he says, suffer, you're not, suffer not yourself to be led away um, by any vain or foolish thing, and uh, suffer not the devil to lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. We know, of course, that when a sin like this has been committed, that it may indeed be easier to do it the second time and that one may be more susceptible to temptations towards that end. So it's a sad thing that has occurred here with Corianton. And Nilly Maxwell once said, as in the time of Alma, the bad conduct of a few members slows the work. President Hinckley once said, whenever you step over the line in an immoral act or in doing any other evil thing, the church is that much weaker. When you stand true and faithful, it is that much stronger. Each one of you counts. Here, I think, is something I did not point out in the introduction. I mentioned two things that could explain why it was that Corianton would do such a thing. And then prior to that, I asked, uh, what is the harm of such a mistake, such a thing that was done so, uh, to use Elder Holland's language again, was done surreptitiously when um, Corianton went to the land of Siren and sought out Isabel? Well, here's another reason that we do find in the text, and that simply is that Corianton's acts took credibility away from Alma's words, and of course, from the words of these other powerful missionaries. Verse 12, And now the Spirit of the Lord doth say unto me, Command thy children to do good, lest they lead away the hearts of many to destruction, of many people to destruction. Therefore I command you, my son, in the fear of God, that you refrain from your iniquities. The Institute Manual provides this. In Alma chapter 39, verses 11 through 12, Alma explained to Corianton, his wayward son, the fact that our negative examples can lead others away from the gospel. President Joseph Fielding Smith warned of the seriousness of leading people away from the truth. Quote, I think the greatest crime in all this world is to lead men and women, the children of God, away from the true principles. We see in the world today philosophies of various kinds tending to destroy faith, faith in God, faith in the principles of the gospel. What a dreadful thing that is. The Lord says, if we labor all our days and save but one soul, how great will be our joy with him. On the other hand, how great will be our sorrow and our condemnation if through our acts we have led one soul away from his truth. He who blinds one's soul, he who spreads error, he who destroys through his teachings divine truth, truth that would lead a man to the kingdom of God and to its fullness, how great shall be his condemnation and his punishment in eternity. For the destruction of a soul is the destruction of the greatest thing that has ever been created. Here's some insightful commentary from Elder Boyd K. Packer about the way in verse 12 that, that Alma acknowledges his duty to teach his son as he's speaking to Corianton. He says, After this severe rebuke, Alma the loving father became Alma the teacher. He knew that the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just. Yea, it had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else. So Alma taught Corianton. He spoke first of Christ. So Elder Packer, I think, is pointing something similar out here, that now that the rebuke is kind of complete, now Alma will begin to teach these doctrinal concepts to Corianton. And it is not to be missed that the first doctrinal concept that he will teach does come at the end of Alma chapter 39, and it is having to do with the coming of the Savior himself. And he, of course, is the center of all the other doctrine that will be taught. Verse 13, that ye turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength, that ye lead away the hearts of no more to do wickedly, but rather return unto them and acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. 
Now, lest we um, gloss over that last thing, uh, Alma is telling Corianton to do something incredibly difficult. He's telling him to make restitution and to go back to the land of Antionum. And think about how hostile Antionum is at this point, now that these missionaries have been extracted from that region and the believing Zoramites have already been cast out as refugees from that place. They've gone to Jershon and they're being sought out by Zoram, the leader of these Zoramites. Um, and, and we know what kind of violence will follow from this incident. And now Corianton is being told to return unto them, presumably meaning go back to the land of Antionum and acknowledge your faults and try to make restitution for these people that you have misled while you've been there. An incredibly difficult task. Of this uh, several verse section, Ogden and Skinner say, Alma is in effect saying, Corianton, listen to your older brothers. Pay attention to their counsel. You've been a bad example. When the Zoramites saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. The Lord could say the same thing to any openly disobedient missionary. I command you, my son, in the fear of God, to refrain from your iniquities. Return unto the people and acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. Confession, acknowledging and admitting our sins, is an indispensable part of true repentance. Going through all other steps but avoiding confession is not complete repentance and will not bring complete forgiveness. The Institute Manual says if you have committed sexual transgressions, begin the process of repentance now so you can find inner peace and have the full companionship of the Spirit. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Talk with your bishop. He will help you obtain the forgiveness available to those who truly repent. That's from For the Strength of Youth. Elder Richard G. Scott explained what you must do in order to turn to the Lord and be forgiven of serious sins such as immorality. Quote, For a moment I speak to anyone who has succumbed to serious temptation. Please stop now. You can do it with the help from an understanding parent, bishop, or stake president. Serious transgressions such as immorality requires the help of one who holds keys of authority such as a bishop or stake president to quietly work out the repentance process to make sure that it is complete and appropriately done. Do not make the mistake to believe that because you have confessed a serious transgression, you have repented of it. That is an essential step, but it is not all that is required. Nor assume that because someone did not ask you all the important details of a transgression, you need not mention them. You personally must make sure that the bishop or stake president understands those details so that he can help you properly through the process of repentance for full forgiveness. I think this statement by Elder Scott underscores the very important truth about repentance, that uh, the change that we make when we confess and change our behavior and make restitution is an actuating change only. But then the great change is the change that enters us just as the Savior's power entered that woman who extended her hand to touch the hem of his garment. When his power flows back into us and changes us, then that would be a way of saying that the repentance process has um, been made complete and uh, the process has come full circle round. Elder Holland has said, To you is extended the peace and renewal of repentance, available through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In such serious matters, the path of repentance is not easily begun or painlessly traveled. But the Savior of the world will walk that essential journey with you. He will strengthen you when you waver. He will be your light when it seems most dark. He will take your hand and be your hope when hope seems all you have left. His compassion and mercy, with all their cleansing and healing power, are freely given to all who truly wish complete forgiveness and will take the steps that lead to it. 
And as he uses that verbiage, just imagine his power flowing into us as we make those actuating changes. Now this from Elder D. Todd Christofferson on, uh, in his talk, The Divine Gift of Repentance. And by the way, that most previous or that most recent statement by Elder Holland was out of that same October 1998 conference talk that was a condensed form of the Souls, Symbols, and Sacrament BYU talk. Elder Christofferson says the invitation to repent is an expression of love. If we do not invite others to change, or if we do not demand repentance of ourselves, we fail in a fundamental duty we owe to one another and to ourselves. A permissive parent, an indulgent friend, a fearful church leader are in reality more concerned about themselves than the welfare and happiness of those they could help. Yes, the call to repentance is at times regarded as intolerant or offensive, and may even be resented, but guided by the Spirit, it is in reality, it is in reality an act of genuine love. Uh, excuse me, he says, a, a rea- an act of genuine caring. Now we come to this verse, verse 14, where we do indeed discover that Corianton's pride was tied towards um, riches and materialism. It says, Seek not after riches nor the vain things of this world, for behold, you cannot carry them with you. Well, that's quite an amazing and quotable standalone verse, and Ogden and Skinner have written this, Corianton had another problem. His father Alma taught him, Seek not after riches nor the vain things of this world, you cannot carry them with you. Paul made the same point. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. As Brother Skinner tells his students, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Getting things seems to be a serious problem for humans. How foolish to spend so much time and effort to get things, only to leave them all behind when we die and return to our God. Beware of covetousness, Jesus warned. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. The psalmist tersely described why this is so foolish. Quote, When he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His riches shall not descend after him. Think about the implications of the word descend in that verse. (laughs) So those are some really great standalone verses that complement this one so much that, um, quote from Psalms was in Psalm 49, verse 17. And that great statement by the Savior about the abundance, uh, or a man's life consisting not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth, was in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 15 and 21. Now, before we move into the final section in this chapter, where we'll go in the direction that um, Elder Packer forecasted, where Alma will talk to Corianton doctrinally, and will begin to lay out Uh, how it is that there will be the coming of Christ. Before we do that, here is some summarizing commentary from Ogden and Skinner on what it is that we've read so far. Alma did as a good father should do. He chastised and corrected his son and commanded him to repent for his good. Then Ogden and Skinner point out a very important, I think, and interesting comparison. They say, compare the Old Testament priest Eli, whose sons had made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. That's out of 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. He told him to cross himself in the lusts of his eyes, that is, to refrain or abstain from the lusts of the flesh. Joseph Smith's translation of Matthew 16, verse 26 says, For a man to take up his cross is to deny himself of all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. The basic issue is control. We came into this life not just to obtain a physical body, but to learn to control it. And life is really at the heart of the matter. 
The three greatest sins mentioned by Alma all have something to do with life. Murder, the unauthorized taking of life. Immorality, the unauthorized use of the sacred force of life. And denying the Holy Ghost, the purposeful rejection of the spiritual component of life. The secret is to love the things of the Spirit. To be constantly filling ourselves with spiritual things so that the spiritual stimulation will be more appealing and satisfying than giving in to the passions of the body. As another great missionary Paul taught, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, the context for most everything that has been read so far has had to do with uh, chastity before marriage, but here's something that Ogden and Skinner uh, poll from President Thomas S. Monson's writings about fidelity after being married. President Monson said, Choose a companion carefully and prayerfully, and when you are married, be fiercely loyal one to another. Priceless advice comes from a small framed plaque I once saw in the home of an uncle and aunt. It read, Choose your love, love your choice. There is great wisdom in those few words. Commitment in marriage is absolutely essential. Now to this section. Regarding the coming of Christ, this is the final section in this chapter, verses 15 through 19. And so interesting how this term, glad tidings, is used in connection with the coming of Christ and the way in which it's delivered by an angel. There's some consistency in that um, between the New Testament and, of course, the writings of King Benjamin. Verse 15, And now, my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Behold, I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. And now, my son, this was the ministry unto which ye were called, to declare these glad tidings unto this people, to prepare their minds, or rather that salvation might come unto them, that they may prepare the minds of their children to hear the word at the time of his coming. As I mentioned in the introduction, I think this gives such great hope to see that there is still this charge for Corianton to continue to preach the gospel, which we'll see in Alma chapter 42, and then later in Alma chapter 49, we'll see that he did make his repentance complete. But here at the beginning of his mission, Alma is making it clear that Corianton seems to have a problem with the most fundamental doctrine of all, the coming of Christ. Ogden and Skinner have written, Look to Christ. He is our only hope for getting our sins taken away. Alma says, in effect, Corianton, you had better apply the saving power of Christ to yourself. Once you have resolved your own situation, then your mission is to teach others about the glad tidings of their Savior. Verse 17, And now, I will ease your mind somewhat on this subject. So, again, the first doctrinal teaching to come from this father to his son, uh, easing his mind on a subject that he's not quite clear on. Behold, you marvel why these things should be known so long beforehand. Behold, I say unto you, Is not a soul at this time as precious unto God as a soul will be at the time of his coming? If we really look at this, it reveals something, I think, that living during that time, it would have been necessary to have faith that there ever would be a Messiah that ever would come. Now it's a a historical fact that there was a Jesus of Nazareth, and an entire um, world religion has grown out of the idea that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. And so we have that to look to. Uh, Among all of these Christian sects and denominations, of course, there is a gleaming needle in the haystack. Uh, During Joseph Smith's time, there was none. It was his task to restore that true church. But at this point in history, there just was no such historical uh, occurrence. 
and people had to have the faith to look ahead and to believe that a Christ indeed would come. Verse 18, Is it not as necessary that the plan of redemption should be made known unto this people as well as unto their children? Now, this is a similar line of questioning and logic that we use when saying that isn't it equally important for those dead who have not had access to the saving ordinances of the priesthood to have access to that by proxy through the temple as it is for those who are now living? And of course, we know the answer to that. So Alma's saying something similar here. He's saying, aren't these people who lived before the coming of Christ equally precious to him? And shouldn't they have equal access to the doctrines of his salvation and to the power of his salvation. So then he's saying in verse 19, the final verse, is it not as easy at this time for the Lord to send his angel to declare these glad tidings unto us as unto our children or as after the time of his coming? The timing of the coming of the Savior and whether he ever would would have been a great mystery to the people during this time, just as it is in our day when we look forward to his second coming. That's a very interesting analog when we think of that. All of this teaching by Alma also presupposes that the Lord would have known this plan and would have set it in place before the creation. The prophet Joseph Smith said in History of the Church, quote, The great Jehovah contemplated the whole of the events connected with the earth pertaining to the plan of salvation before it rolled into existence. The past, the present, and the future were and are with him, one eternal now. He knew of the fall of Adam, the iniquities of the antediluvians, of the depth of iniquity that would be connected with the human family. He comprehended the fall of man and his redemption. He knew the plan of salvation and pointed it out. He was acquainted with the situation of all nations and with their destiny. He knows the situation of both the living and the dead, and has made ample provision for their redemption. This is something that Elder Tad Callister has taught in the book, The Infinite Atonement, that the atonement is infinite in the sense that it's infinite in time. It's also, of course, infinite in its reach, atoning for all of God's creations and all of his children. But it's also infinite through time, and so it's retroactive in its effect. Uh, So even though this great atoning act that he committed in mortality happened at a specific slice in time, It was, again, retroactive in its effect. And Christ's foreknowledge uh, affected the redemption of all who lived before him uh, in that way. And here are some teachings from Elder Boyd K. Packer on this. The gospel teaches us that relief from torment and guilt can be earned through repentance. Save for those few who defect to perdition after having known a fullness, there is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. There is never a time, the prophet Joseph Smith taught, when the spirit is too old to approach God. All are within the reach of pardoning mercy who have not committed the unpardonable sin. And so, we pray and we fast and we plead and we implore. We love those who wander and we never give up hope. I bear witness of Christ and of the power of his atonement. Well, this certainly is an example of a father who pled on behalf of his son and who implored and who taught him so carefully and so masterfully these points of doctrine that could help to ultimately affect his behavior so that Corianton would willfully face the pain of his own transgressions, his own sins, and his own crimes before God, and that he would face those 
uh, just as his father Alma had done, and apply the atoning blood of Jesus Christ in his life. So a beautiful chapter indeed. And this brings us to the end then of Alma chapter 39. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.